Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Boat Trader is America's largest boating marketplace with over 100,000 boats to choose from. We offer simple, comprehensive solutions for those looking to sell, find, and finance new or used boats. Visit BoatTrader.com to get started. Welcome to episode 109 of the Whiskey and Whitetails podcast, released on January 23rd, 2023. Thank you for joining us. If you're new here, thank you. If you're not, welcome back. As always, I'm your host, Gus. I'm Matt. And we sat down with a real-life moonshiner turned legal, Royce from Hidden Barn Distillery. And I got to tell you, Gus, now the podcast is over and we have had our fill of this whiskey. This is fantastic stuff. Yeah, don't want to miss out on this. This is good stuff. It's uh, It's got a great flavor profile, and uh, the stories and the history and the background that he shares uh, is, is is really fun, and uh, I think you guys are going to like it. So, Absolutely. Thanks for joining us. Enjoy. Thanks for joining us, Royce, from Hidden Barn. We're glad to have you here. Amen. Glad to be on. We uh, we do things a little different. We From the kind of beginning of the company, it's always been sitting around a campfire at a hunt club. Like, what, what kind of whiskey do you like? What kind of stories do you want to tell? And we had no idea that the bourbon community was as big as it is. So we're not really part of that. We're more in the hunting community. Um, okay. But we wanted to come at it because we, we love the story. It's... We haven't drank it on purpose yet because we wanted to experience it with you. But the okay. story that you have and everything, your history and all that is really cool. And this is no uh, no disrespect to Jackie. We would love to talk to her as well. I just figured uh, for what we wanted to have out of the conversation, you, you were the guy. All right, man. Hey, just so you know, Jackie's a hell of a shot. Oh, I know. I've heard, I've been in classes with her. <laughs> She's good with a shotgun. Oh, is she? She is. Well, hey, we just uh, it's duck season's wrapping up. Maybe next maybe next season she wants to go out with us. You can come too. That sounds good. <laughs> awesome. So with that out of the way, so we have, I don't know, I'm sure you're familiar, but we have batch five with us. I'm going to pour it just so they can kind of air out a little bit. But um, ooh, fresh pop too. Yeah. So I was perusing the internet and um, and I was, and I saw somebody talking about Hidden Barn and Jackie had said, yeah, that, you know, Royce goes out with a bucket and collects yeast. And, and the guy laughed. And I think he laughed because he thought it was a joke. But I'm, no I'm, joke, I know it's not. <laughs> it's no so, joke, man. So I was like, let me look this up. So you're, so just to let you know, I'm an Appalachian boy as well. Um, my family, there's moonshine running in them hills. I'm from Wilkes County, which is where, you know, NASCAR was invented, Junior Johnson and all that, one of the biggest alcohol seizures in the history. And so I've always liked grain forward profiles. I've always liked reminding myself of the clear stuff. 
Right. <laughs> and that's a lot of the reviews I've seen is like, if you don't like grains, you know, blah, blah, blah. But that's, that's what I like. I'm not a huge fan of the typical palate. I've always been a firm believer that if you can make great moonshine, it's very easy to make good bourbon. So like it's hard it. to, to me, it's harder to make really good moonshine than this bourbon. The reason why is, is bourbon has that barrel to clean it up. Right. Moonshine's got to be right, right off the still. There is no other help you get from it. Yep. Right. Absolutely. And it's moonshine. We've become quite accustomed to it here on our hunting trips. And uh, we have patrons come out and the next morning you, they, yeah, they, they pee for the first time after drinking moonshine. They smell it again and they just start vomiting. And it's my favorite oh, yeah. thing. <laughs> so let's start in the beginning. You want to so your fourth generation, right? So how far back do you want to go? Uh, 11th. So I'm the 11th, 11th. generation in my family to distill. Um, all mines from the mountains in Eastern Kentucky. Uh, we could trace everything all the way back. Uh, I've got stills that belong to my great, uh, my great grandfather and great, great grandfather. I've got old guns. They used in feuds down there in the mountains over moonshine territory. All that stuff's uh, available to see. I have like a small museum set up inside of my distillery down. At, it's called Neely family distillery. Mm-hmm. Uh, my father and I own the company 100%. Uh, we started the distillery back in 2015. My father built the entire place. We owned a, uh, still does own a very successful construction company. And when I got out of college, I knew that's exactly what I wanted to do. Um, I started distilling illegally while I was in college, allegedly. Right. And uh, I just <laughs> developed a real passion for it. I love it. Uh, I'm the kind of owner that loves being in the still house. I don't like being in the office with my feet propped up. <clears throat> when we get off here today, I got to do a bunch of paperwork. And that's the worst part of the job, to be honest with you. I'd rather be down there covered in grains and making the whiskey. For sure. That's, I'd be in the same exact boat. Yeah. We both work corporate jobs, and uh, I'd much rather be doing what you're doing. So I've talked a little bit with Gus about the name and everybody. Is it true that uh, Kentucky folks used to paint their sheds black just to, in solidarity with the distillers so nobody knew? Yeah, it is. You would hear that a lot, definitely down in the mountains. And if you drive through Kentucky, you see a lot of black barns as well. Now, right. They also, for tobacco barns, you paint them black so they draw heat to it to dry the tobacco out. Mm, okay. This was also very prevalent in Scotland and Ireland. So my family comes from Ireland. That was one of the reasons or one of the ways we come up with Hidden Barn. Uh, it's a big time thing in Ireland. So they did paint the barns black to cover illegal distillation operations there. Interesting. Yeah, I think our I, my uh, according to my 22 and me or whatever that thing's called, I'm, I'm from Ireland as well. So that's there you go. go. <laughs> and you a black barn. Yeah, somebody <laughs> in the family definitely had a black barn. There's uh, a yeah, I asked my mom this morning. I was like, are we related to any Neely's? And she was like, I went to Sunday school with a couple of Neely. I'm sure they're not, you know, direct related, but I I figured that being in Appalachia, the, the names don't change that much. They don't. My family uh, was in Scott County, Virginia before they come to Kentucky. Okay. So they were closer. That's uh, our family line pretty much runs from Wilkes County up in Appalachia straight up into Virginia. So it's, I'm sure somebody in our past has come into contact with each other. Yeah. So how do you, where's the best place to start with after going, what, how, where did the idea for Hidden Barn come from? When you, after, because you wanted to, are you branched off from the Neely Family Distillery or is it still kind of the same? Well, so uh, I own a portion of Hidden Barn. So there's four owners to Hidden Barn. It's Nate Weininger and Matthew Dangner from the 5280 Whiskey Society and then me and Jackie. So the way Hidden Barn started was, is Nate and Matt had reached out to me. I went out, to, they flew me out, I think four years ago to talk at their whiskey society. And I guess they really enjoyed what I said and the values and things that I, you know, held when I distill. 
And uh, they approached me and wanted to start a brand. We didn't have any idea what we were going to call it or anything at the time. They wanted to obviously play off with me being the master distiller behind this brand. Uh, they wanted to play off some of my history and, and just some history of Kentucky as well. And uh, Nate was a good friend of Jackie Zykan, and that's kind of how Jackie came on board. So she came up one day just to taste some of my whiskey that we were getting ready to batch up to, to mess around with Hidden Barn. She really liked it. And uh, we, we threw the idea out to her, and she joined the uh, joined the company. So it's sold at Neely as well. Uh, I consider it just a sub-brand off of the Neely Family Distillery, since we do own a portion of it. Um, but, uh, yeah, that's kind of how uh, that come into play. And I'm responsible for selecting mash bills, uh, distilling, so we're making a lot of our own whiskey now on site uh, that's going to be separate from any of the Neely House brands that I'm already distilling. Uh, but every... Every one of the Series 1, which I think there's six batches of it now, every one of those barrels has been sourced from my distillery, which is weird because I'm selling whiskey to myself. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so, so it's interesting to negotiate with myself. So, yeah. uh, I'm sure you both both come out as a winner. We, we have something like that. You got to make money, but also give yourself a good deal. That's right. It's a, it's a strange uh, scenario to be involved in. That's for sure. So you're known for doing everything the old way. And I know that... Uh, that's like Cypress fermentation tanks, the wild yeast stuff. You still use copper pot stills. That's right. What What was the re Is it just because of the heritage or is it, is there a reason that you're going that route? Well, I learned the old way. Um, so, you know, making moonshine and, and things like that, all with copper pot stills. I sweet mashed and sour mash when I made moonshine. I always like the sweet mash better. Um, so I took a lot of that over when I started to make bourbon as well. And I did a whole lot of research and it just seemed like to me, a lot of people gravitated more towards, uh, pre-prohibition era whiskey, all right? And you would hear this mentioned all the time, pre-prohibition era whiskey. And then I would do some research and I'm like, well, is this company really making pre-prohibition era whiskey? They're running a column still. It's, it's you know, they're sourcing it from MGP. They're not. It's, it's kind of a facade and a lie. So when I really started doing more research in pre-prohibition era whiskey, you know, they were entering uh, barrels at a lower proof. Why? Because they sold whole barrels at the time. Mm -hmm. But the whiskey tasted better then. Right. They were using local sourced grains, not, you know, grains shipped in from all over the place. They were actually getting things local to the community where they were at, which gave them a unique profile to each distillery. They were doing open top fermentation. Uh, and at the time, they were probably doing that because it was available and it was easier. But there are a lot of distilleries on down the road that when they took the open top Cypress fermenters out, the whiskey profile changed drastically. Uh, a couple of major distilleries here in Kentucky, I'm not going to say who they are, but anybody that knows whiskey will know who, who I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. You know, it was a major change that they made. So I just started playing around with that. I really liked the profiles we were getting. And as it's aged out, I'm not going to lie to both of you guys, it was uh, incredibly stressful because <laughs> I didn't, you know, I'm pouring millions of dollars of my own family's money into these brands and into the whiskey that I'm making and have absolutely no idea how it's going to turn out. Because there really was nobody else to compare myself to at the time that was doing everything that I was. You would hear one person that would be doing pot stills or one person that was sweet mashing, but not somebody that was kind of doing all of it together at one time and that gives my whiskey the profile that you guys taste and it's different than anything else on the market well with that i'm i keep sitting here smelling it i need to get into it yeah so what can we expect out of batch five this one actually had more of to me you still get the grain profile first <clears throat> uh taste off of it however when we say grain first it's not like it's young okay right. it just has a grainier taste to it and that comes from the sweet mashing that i do uh, and I wanted that with my whiskey. I wanted it to not just taste like a barrel. 
only. And a lot of whiskey to me falls short as it continues to age because the barrel just overpowers everything. You don't taste the water quality. You don't taste the yeast anymore. You don't taste the nuances of the distiller and the distillation process. You definitely don't taste the grain anymore because the barrel just overshadows it. So that whiskey there was aged in a char two barrel. Um, and I use 24 month air seasoned oak. And I use that because it washes the tannins out of that oak, oh, yeah. making my whiskey sweeter and much more palatable at a younger age. Once again, that's a pre-prohibition era technique. And then that low barrel entry proof, I believe those ones there were entered off of that batch at 110. I do everything now at 105. And just like I was telling you guys earlier, whiskey before prohibition was sold by the barrel. So that means that the whiskey had to be ready to go straight out of the barrel. That's the way I do it as well. Every single product I've released at Neely so far has been single barrel and barrel strength. That hidden barn there is also barrel strength. I like just it. Like single barrel. That, that's got Jackie's uh, twist to it as well. So what I was doing as a single barrel distillery, she takes those barrels and then blends them or batches them together, giving it a whole new profile and to me, a sum that is greater than the parts inside of it. So because I taste all the barrels with her as well. Um, I think it's really neat. It's, it's incredible to work with Jackie. She's a genius at what she does. Um, and I'm very lucky to be able to learn from her. You're picking, yep. picking the different palettes and aromas and mouthfeels that you want. And this has a really nice mouthfeel. It almost has like a soda after effect, like a Dr. Pepper, if you will. <laughs> it's really good. The, um, like you said, the, the, the grain forward flavor profile is really, is really nice to actually, you know, see or reference a mash bill and then actually taste those flavors. Um, yeah. A lot of times you read a mash bill and it's like, well, that's, it looks like a really interesting mash bill, but I, all I get is Oak or yeah. all, you know, all I get is, is some other byproduct of the aging process. Um, and Jackie, the conversation that we had with her last year at Seawee, uh, it made, made it very clear that she is very, very good when it comes to identifying and uh, you know, flavor profiles and blending those things together. So um, it's not it's not a surprise between the process you're implementing and and her you know her blending skills. That this is a, this is a really good whiskey. Um, which actually what you were talking about earlier some of the, some of the process that that you were you were referring to actually leads us to a a question that some of our Patreon members had, um, and one of them was you know what is what is the best part and then what's the scariest part of, of basically producing your own product? I, 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 you cut out there a little bit, but I think it was, what is the best part and the worst part of producing your own product? Yep. Yep. So <clears throat> the best part to me is, I mean, at the end of the day, um, you know, it's mine. They're, they're my babies. I mean, it's my creation completely. And uh, it's just an unreal feeling of pride that I get. You know, when I get to come on a podcast and talk about it, when we win awards in San Francisco, I mean, it's just an unbelievable feeling and it's addicting to me. I love it. Um, I love to mess around in that distillery. Like I told you guys, I, I like to be in there. I like to be working. You know, my guys <clears throat> down there uh, that are working for me and, and help me out, you know, I'm involved in every single part of the process. I still make all the cuts off of the stills. Um, so it's just, it's incredible for me to see something that I worked on four years ago come to fruition now and then people enjoy it. So that's the best part of it. The worst part is obviously that same on that same side of it. I bear all, you know, if it's, if there's a problem with it or people don't like it, then I really take it to heart. Yeah. And it's, it's really something that I've, it's been a challenge for me um, to be able to work through that because, you know, you're not going to please everybody. Sure. Hell boys, if I please 25% of the people, then I'm doing really, <laughs> really damn good. And that means 75% of them aren't going to like what I'm doing. I sure. just had to work through that. And it's been a big thing just with Hidden Bar in general. I know with the other uh, owners as well, you know, it's we're so proud of what we're doing and we put so much, not only our own 
money inside of it because it's completely self-financed at this point. But my whiskey and our, you know, all of our hard work into it, you know, it's just hard to hear any negatives, especially when it's somebody that's never even tasted it. You know, you get a lot of hate from, you know, that's just anything anymore in, yeah. in any industry. Yep. You get a lot of hate. And most of the time it's people that are just jealous and, you know, they never even tried the product. Right. They just, you know, I mean, yeah, that's, you, see, you see it on every forum. Every idiot today has got a voice because of social media. And that's just what you get. <laughs> We teach a lot of, we teach whiskey classes and usually we'll bring something that it's always my favorite thing to ask. Like who, who in here, like what's your experience level zero to 10, you know, and you'll get a bunch of eights. And then I'm like, well, do you want to teach the class? Because I'm pretty damn smart. And I, and I give, I give myself like a five, maybe, <laughs> maybe, maybe five on a good day, but I, uh, I'm a firm believer with bourbon. You know, uh, if you're not learning, then you, you know, you're really not even trying with this industry because it, you're never going to know everything about it. Nobody right. is. Jimmy Russell doesn't know everything about it. He's been doing it longer than anybody has. Um, you know, I'm just, uh, I consider myself a student of the industry and I'm always trying to learn. And like I said, I mean, generally with, with what I've experienced with the seven years that I've been legal and, and in, involved in the community, 98% of the people are fantastic. They want to learn. Yep. They really want to be there. They, they want to taste the product. They like new things. I'm seeing, especially with our distillery, we're seeing the consumers now becoming more educated. So they know what sourced is, right? right. They're mm -hmm. looking at bottles and they understand like, wow, this is distilled by you guys, not just purchased from somewhere else. Right. Although there's nothing wrong with sourcing, just people need to understand the difference between the two of them. Um, it's just that 2%, man. The 2% of people and that you're always going to have that are just going to be, right. you know, how they are. Yeah. That's the problem with these classes. I bring in stuff that's craft. It's different. It's not the same. And people don't like it. And it's because they, they've been told that bourbon should taste this way or that way. And that's, and that's not the case. It's just every, all the brands that have been hyped up and yeah. to me, they're over oaked. I don't buy them. I don't look for them. I don't, I don't like it. I think there's no real flavor in there. We're like this. I can actually taste, I can smell the clear that yeah. we get from Carolina. I could smell that in it. I get a little bit of the corn taste on it, but yep. I get more flavors that I'm not familiar with. And I think that's probably, so the wild yeast side of it, do you pick a certain type of bush? I use blackberry bushes. So if you go down to our old family still site, uh, there's a spring there and that's where they drew their water out of. And that's also where they cooled their worm from. So that's mm. what they used to mash with and what they used to cool. And yeast is attracted to sugar, right? So it spores move through the air and, and it, it's attracted to anything that has sugar on it. Well, Beside that water supply, obviously, there's where fruit bushes and things like to grow at because there's water there beside of it. Uh -huh. So the yeast is attracted to that area. I just go down there. I take three or four buckets. I'll fill it full of a high rye mash from my distillery that has no yeast inside of it that's still hot. That way I make sure there's no yeast that's got into it from our facility. And then I hang it up over top of those bushes. I come back three or four days later. I do this in the spring, by the way. Uh -huh. I come back three or four days later, and I mean, they're bubbling and working away. And I take that back up. I'll do an agar smear. I'll separate the yeast, the wild yeast out, which they're bigger than commercial yeast. As the yeast becomes uh, used over and over again, the yeast tend to become smaller. And I'll isolate that wild yeast out. Then I put it into a Donna jug where I start replicating it. And every day I'll add more mash to it and more mash to it. And it continues to grow and grow and grow until after about six days, I'm ready to scale it up to a 300-gallon uh, ferment and then to a 600-gallon ferment, which is what we run every day. Wow. Man. How long does that yeast last before you have to go back and get more? And it just depends on how good you are at keeping it from uh, mutating. Yeah. Yeast mutates like this. Um, you know, I'm really lucky that, you know, unlike my grandfather and great grandfather, they, that's now these old timers, like where you're from yep. uh, down in Appalachia, they didn't have yeast. And if you hear a lot of old timers talk about it, they would say, 
Well, yeast will give you hangovers. Right. right? They didn't know it was in there. (laughs) They didn't, they didn't know that it was moving. You know, it was the wild yeast that was working their mash. And, um, I was really lucky to be mentored by a a man named Dick Stoll. He was the last master distiller for the original Mictors that closed in 91. Um, and uh, he passed away a couple years ago, but uh, he's the one that actually taught me how to work yeast, how to look and control it inside of the distillery. Because back in the day, he worked bean yeast at Mictors, at the original Mictors. Huh. Uh, his family, uh, his master distiller that he learned from was Charles Everett Bean. Oh, he yeah. would go every year back down to Kentucky and bring bean yeast back with him. And that's what they worked off of all year. So he was a master at being able to keep the yeast alive. And that's the big, like I was saying, that's the big thing with it is just his control, his sanitation is really key to it. And then it's just knowing when there is something off to where, because I, when I catch that yeast and we start working it, I pull a little sample of it off and I store that in what's called a Donna jug that we keep frozen at the distillery. And that's a restarter that you can use at any time. Mm. So if it was to go bad, I can pull that out. And in five days, I'm ready to go back again with it. I pull some more of that out, store it. And then I keep working off of the big batch, just like people do when they make sourdough bread. Yeah. I was going to say that sounds, I, Got a friend that makes a hot sauce, and they do kind of a similar thing. They can freeze it off and, and restart it later if it if it. So, do you find that you need more? Do you are you measuring the yeast, or you're you're just like whatever nature gives me? Uh no, we we measure yeah. and uh, we check uh, counts on it as well as we're culturing it and growing it, just to just to make sure we've got the correct cell count in there when we move it over. Yeah, that's yeah. awesome. I, I appreciate you explaining all that. I think um, one thing that, and, and Matt and I talk about this on another podcast and in our, and in our class that we teach, um, that I think there is a there is a gross underappreciation for the amount of work that goes into you know the bottle that you pick up at a store or or from from a distillery shop, right? Um, and like you mentioned, people are really quick to to shit all over a brand for whatever reason. You know, someone has an opinion because it's an MGP product or because um, you know, they sourced their distillate somewhere else and then did their own thing with it. But it's like, can we just talk about how it tastes? Like, can yeah. we talk about the end product? Cause that's, what's important, right? Like not that the process isn't important, but so much work goes into it. And yet people want to ignore that and just crap on it for, for no other reason than they don't like it or they don't understand the process. And one thing we try to explain is that, you know, when you taste a whiskey, depending on, on what it is and, and, you know, the process it went through, that may be only the second, maybe third, if that, if that distiller is, is, is lucky, um, you know, batch that they've got to see from start to finish. And if they've, if they're part of a big distillery where they've had to sit in a, um, you know, an apprenticeship position for a long time and, and work their way up to that, you know, they may never see the end of a second or third run of their own, their own product. And so, um, yeah, I, I just, I just, I, I appreciate you sharing like, and, and I love the fact that you're still getting in the woods and doing things that you learn from your, through your, through heritage, right? Like that's, as you were thinking about that, I was like, that, that's a parallel between a whiskey and hunting that I never really made. Yeah. And that is, you know, at, in the beginning, uh, to make good mo- moonshine, you had to have some good woodsmanship. You had to be able to know where to find things, know where to find good water. You couldn't be. That's what it all was. Yeah. All right. I'll tell you something else too, that ties right in, not to try to cut you off. No, please. Incredibly relevant to what you're talking about. So, I mean, if you couldn't survive in the woods, you couldn't make whiskey. And sure. I'm talking a hundred years ago. Right. And this is a big difference from what you see on the TV show. Yeah. Uh, 
to what it really is like. Mm-hmm. When they made whiskey back in the day, it wasn't uh, you and me go out in the woods, uh, you know, Gus, and we hang out there for like two hours and we shake hands and we go back to our nice houses and we <laughs> hang out for five days and we come back and run it. Like yeah. they show it on the TV show. Right. When these guys went out in the woods, they went deep into the woods, they went deep into the mountains and they were out there for weeks yeah. at a time. Mm-hmm. Right? And that means you had to hunt. Yeah. You had to be able to survive in the woods for weeks at a time to make whiskey because it, it's too much work to haul everything out there. So sure. they would bring it all with them and they would stay out there the whole time. Plus you're reusing sour mash off of each batch. Right. So because to make it in the woods to really keep the bacteria and things out there so present, you need to be able to sour mash it. Right. So the first run that you do is a sweet mash run. And that's strictly just to get to the sour mash. And then you're going to sit out there and you run a lineage the entire time. So they're going to reuse the corn over and over. I know some guys that used to reuse corn up to 16 times. No kidding. That's wow. right. Yep. But you had to be able to hunt. You had to, you know, a lot of times they would cook eggs on the still. Sure. <laughs> you be, I mean, you, really, you had to be able to survive in the woods. Was it? Did you get to do any of that coming up? No, not not that intense. I've never stayed out there for weeks at a time. But I mean, I'm being, you know, I've spent my fair amount of time. I'm, I'm, I like to hunt as well. I'm so busy with the distillery, I never really get to do it as much as I like to anymore. But I went a few days this past year season. We had a monster buck. I, I grew up uh, about 10 minutes away from where my current distillery is uh, on a tobacco farm. And uh, we had a monster. It had to be a 10 to 12 point buck out there. Wow. Uh, I, never, I think the neighbor ended up getting him actually, but. That's how it goes. <laughs> it, it always happens that way. Tobacco farm. Yeah, I think he crossed over over on the neighbor's property and the neighbor got him. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tacovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. You think they eat tobacco worms? I have this theory that they do. I don't know. They probably do. I have a theory that they like the way they taste. <laughs> I, wouldn't eat, I wouldn't eat a tobacco worm if I was them. But you know. I wouldn't either. That's a nasty looking creature. Nasty looking creature. But <laughs> it's, it's like there's tobacco farms where I'm from and there was that's where the deer were. And I, it's like, it's good coverage, but there's also cornfields, you know, but they yeah. love those tobacco, those tobacco fields. So do you, have you, um, we were talking about, uh, oh, uh, age statements. I hate them. They drive me nuts because people will justify how good a whiskey is by how old it is. And they don't care what it tastes like. Mm-hmm. It's, it's like, it's only six years. It's not going to be good. It's like, how do you know that? So for you guys, have you ever overaged? Not yet. Um, I've never over-oaked anything yet. Uh, the oldest bourbon that we've got on site is uh, going on six years this year. Um, we check them pretty regularly, especially now that we have, you know, Jackie on board with us. She really does a good job of mapping and, and staying on top of my rickhouse for me. Uh, we haven't over-oaked anything yet. I've tasted a lot of over-oaked whiskey. On the other side of owning Neely and, and making my own brands and things like that, about 50% of what I do is contracting for other 
uh, companies. Nice. One, a year ago, I had eight different clients there that I was modeling for. I've kind of slimmed that out now because we're just too busy. But um, at that point, I got to taste 13-year-old Barton. I got to taste, you know, eight, 12, 14-year-old MGP. I got to taste MGP light whiskey. Like, all this different stuff they were shipping into me. And a lot of times, the older the whiskey, the older whiskey was worse than the younger stuff that they were bringing in. I mean, to me, I really like the six to eight-year-old Barton. The 50 barrels of 13-year-old that I played around with, a lot of them were over and I think it's easy to over oak when you start getting up into that age there, along with just the loss and evaporation, everything else associated with dealing with old whiskey and older barrels. Um, I'm like you. I, I I don't like people that judge whiskey off of what they read. All right. I, I'd rather, you know, you taste it, but it's a parameter that I want to know. I want to know the age of it. Not so I can judge it like, oh, my God, it's young. I don't want to try it. No, I like it two years old, four years old. There's really, really good old whiskey. And there's really, really bad old whiskey. There's really, really good young whiskey. And there's really, really bad young whiskey. And I like trying all of them, making the decision for myself. And I want to know the recipe. I want to know the entry proof. I want to know how it was distilled. I want to know every parameter that I can on it so I can understand what I'm what I'm trying and then try to figure out why it tastes the way that it does. That's that's how I analyze whiskey. That's a, uh, Gus likes to tell everybody, like, People are like, well, if I've got two hundred dollars to spend, what should I buy? And he's, oh yeah, yeah, that's my favorite thing to tell people. And it actually happened the first time it happened. I was, it was during the holidays, um, and I was in a in a liquor store, and this this guy was trying to, this young lady was trying to buy a gift for her boyfriend, and he and he wanted Blanton so bad, and you know, you know how what that cost, you know, in secondary and and, and our 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 liquor stores down here, and I said, you know, ma'am. I, 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 I hate to, to intrude, but I can't help it overhearing. I was like, for the same amount of money that you're going to end up spending, if and when you find Blanton's, I said, you could buy your boyfriend or whatever four, six really solid bottles to give him a small collection to start with and be able to blend those and experiment and have a much better experience than just one bottle that's, in my opinion, overpriced. And But actually uh, learn to appreciate What's, yeah. what's in the, what, you know, the spirit as opposed to, well, I only wear Nike running shoes. Right. You know, it's like, have you ever tried Brooks? They're pretty fucking good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And we do the same thing at our classes. Um, I, I thought he was going to get into it earlier, but there's a lot of times we do our classes blind and we usually do three or four whiskeys. Uh, and it's our favorite thing to do to, uh, sometimes we'll swap bottles. We'll clean out a bottle and put a different whiskey in it. Um, but a lot of times we will just let them taste and then explain afterwards and very very often uh, for years now we've used we used uh, the older before it's before it changed um the early times bottled and bond but we'll grab a third you know a, a cheap bottle of jim bean white label or evan williams bottle and bond and uh you know when people assume that that one that tastes really good is the blanton's or is the eagle rare or pick whatever they think is in their head that because it's good it must be that um they're often floored that they can get that bottle pretty much anywhere they go for less than 30 yeah. 30 bucks that's our favorite thing to do to people i'll put jw dant in a stag junior bottle and people are like i love stag junior and i'm like have some man and you know they'll bottom up you know we were playing golf and this guy was like man you just can't beat that taste you know after he drank it i don't ever tell him i just for me it's hilarious but he'll go home today and be like oh yeah chug some stag junior on the golf course today he's like no nah, it was a 20 dollar plastic bottle liter so, I'm, a, you know, I'm a big bourbon fan, not only, I mean, I, I love all different types of whiskey. I was a bourbon fan before I got into making uh, bourbon uh, when I was just making moonshine and, and uh, back in college. Um, but I'm like you, you know, I've had, I mean, I, I like a lot of the stuff that comes off the BTEC collection. 
Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, I have to get to try a lot of them. But there's 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 a lot that comes off the BTEC as well that I'm like, what were they even thinking here? You know, um, it just what one person likes is different than what another person likes. And that's the beautiful thing about the industry and the fact there's so many people in the world is there's a spot for pretty much every product anymore. There's just so many different palettes out there. Is that hard for you to, to critique another whiskey since you own a whiskey brand? It is, I mean, I you know. It's, I think it's, I'm pretty hard on my own products. Um, my wife will tell you I'm, I'm pretty hard on myself in general. Uh, it has been really nice with 50, with having the two members of 5280 with us, uh, Matt Dankner and Nate Weininger. They both have phenomenal palates. Um, and Nate really is really good at selecting uh, what whiskey tastes good for a mainstream type of clientele because he's so used to dealing with uh, the club. And that's a, that's a different thing when you go to select barrels because we can find the best single barrel, but that might not only that might not appeal to everybody. If that makes sense, a lot of people like a more mainstream taste, and he's really good at differentiating out uh, what this group would like versus what this person would like versus maybe if we're just targeting three or four people that really enjoy those single barrels. And I think it's been pretty neat to to watch how he does that. We have uh, we have struggled a little bit with getting into doing barrel picks through through whiskey and whitetails and, and through some some clubs and, and and connections that we have because of that reason like we know that people prefer that you know right down right down the middle fastball type type bourbon yeah. and we like to get things we that, don't, are, we don't like that, that. Are, that are different <laughs> we like to experiment like if i'm going to spend money and invest in a single barrel that's supposed to be unique. I want it to be unique, damn it. <laughs> and right. um, and it's we find that people aren't as receptive to that, and so we're we're hesitant to invest in a. We barrel. don't want to do it because it's we're not going to. I'm not going to pick it, it, if the event that I'm stuck with, you know, a few cases of it. I don't want a few cases of something I'm not going to drink. So it's like I would have to pick. I don't know. It's just a different kind of layout of it, but yeah, for but sure. Yeah, but yeah, we understand what you're saying. It's it's um. And I think that ties right into what we were talking about earlier. People, people jumping the gun and assuming a whiskey is one thing or another. You know, the taste is subjective, and just because you don't like something doesn't, or you think it's too young, or you think it's too old, doesn't. That doesn't mean that's how everybody else is going to feel when they actually taste it, right? And I mean, I don't like whiskey that to me tastes hot. I don't like whiskey that drinks over the proof where it's at. That's just not my profile. But a lot of people do. Uh-huh. A yeah. lot of people like spicy. That I mean, a lot of distilleries masked hot or poorly distilled product for a rye mash bill. They really do. They say, oh, it's spicy. It has to be the rye. Well, that's not technically true. You know, there is a rye type of taste to a product. There's also a hot taste from a poorly distilled or a product that hasn't aged the right way or that was aged too high in the brickhouse. Yeah. So I mean, it just, it just depends on what people like. Um, I'll tell you something else that I've learned as a distiller, you have to watch just drinking your own product. And drinking too much of your own product because what happens is, is you, your, well, your palate becomes accustomed just to that and you can't pick up different nuances or problems with your own product. So I think to me, it's important as a distiller and as a distillery owner to try a lot of different products and it keeps your palate level to where you are able to criticize and be able to know what you're actually making with your own product and your taste profile doesn't just move to that, if that makes sense. No, that makes perfect. I learned from Lisa Wicker, actually. She, she's a big advocate of that. You know, don't just drink your own product. Make sure you try a lot of different things. And it just helps you expand expand your palate. Yeah, no, I, I, I 100% agree. I wish this I wish this was in South Carolina because I would. Yeah, this is really good. <laughs> I'm really enjoying it. It's That's the other question we get a lot, too, is what's your favorite whiskey? And uh, I never answer because I don't have a favorite. It's like. Depends on what the situation is, but usually what I like to do is say, how about this? Have you ever had, you know, blank? 
And like this will be added to it. Have you ever had Hidden Barn? And because I, I want people to taste it and fi- just to learn there's different flavors and stuff that are that are involved in it. Yeah. But uh, so I had another Patreon question. They asked, uh, "What happens to your um, the byproduct? You give it to a farm, I'm guessing." We do. I've got a local farmer. Uh, his name's the farmer's name is Brad Hubry, and uh, <clears throat> Brad went to the same high school. I went to. He was about eight years older than me, but we grew up in, in the same town. He comes and gets every single bit of my mash and he has since the very beginning. It's cool now because he's bought a fire truck, like a water hauler. And that's what he picks it up in. It's just pretty bad. Oh, wow. So he's got all my advertising stuff on the side of it when it goes down the road. It's, it's really neat. But the cool thing with it is, is, is Brad runs a, uh, a pretty good size uh, herd of cattle. And now some of this cattle has only ever been fed by sour mash. And uh, Brad processes it and we sell it at the distillery. It's USDA certified, but it's sour mash fed beef. And it's pretty daggone. It's pretty daggone cool. And it's different. That's a uh, reason to come. Yeah. <laughs> if you didn't have one already. Yeah. We sell the daylights of it in the wintertime. And it's a staple or in the summertime. And yeah. it's a staple that we put on every tour. Because when we go through and we talk about what we do with our, you know, that we're not sour mash, we sweet mash. So with all the, the extra mash that we have left over, all the stillage, it goes to that farmer. And then we sell the meat outside. People tend to really gravitate towards it. And I know he's selling it now to uh, to a few different restaurants up in northern Kentucky that are going to like that are promoting it as sour mash fed burgers. That's wild. Can you really no, tell a difference? It's, it's not all in your head. Uh, oh, it is good. Yeah, it's all yeah, cir- it's good, circle yeah. of life. It is. It's pretty neat, and it's really good for just the climate and the industry in Kentucky. You know, it helps add to that bourbon culture. You can taste the difference, though. You're not just making it up. I'm not. But you guys need to come try. It. I yeah, do. No, now we do. 100 yeah. percent. Me too. <laughs> It's, yeah. it's, uh, it's much more lean, a lot less fat in it. Okay. Really? We take several trips up to Kentucky a year, so we'll we'll yeah, make we'll, a, we'll make it a point to come by for sure. Definitely add this to the list. Uh, all right. That's uh, fascinating. I had a question that I wrote down. Do you sell clear like you would make it? Yes. You do? So I, I sell my clear the same way that I made it illegally. Really? I mean, it's better now, to be honest with you, because I've become better at distilling and better at making cuts. Uh, I've still got some of my whiskey from shit back in 2010 2011 uh, i wasn't as good at cutting heads out as i am now but yeah <laughs> i saw my, my clear sold at 120.2 proof wow it's, it's triple pot distilled i mean i bring her off the still at 127 so i barely add any water to it to bring it down just a little bit uh-huh. and that's where i like to sell it at that's wild 122 clear we're gonna have to get some of that and uh and that's gonna have to be our, side by uh, side yeah yeah for sure or just uh, just bring that to our next patreon when we do that hunt oh, this yeah. year. we're planning a, a hunt with our patreon members uh and get together probably we're probably gonna do it in your neck of the woods yeah. somewhere in that appalachia area but we want to do public land so anybody can come just and hang uh, out for a long base camp yeah hang out for a long weekend shoot the shit drink some whiskey and hunt and uh a lot of white tails harvested up here in Sparta. I mean, yep. we're in a we're in a real heavy area for it. We hunt in um, uh, Jackson County. Yeah, we're down yeah, in there. Uh, one of the charities we supports called Camp Camp Hero Kentucky. Yep. I always say it backwards. And uh, his name is Rocco. He's a good dude, but he. Uh, yeah, we always go down there, so I always try to save my buck for <laughs> Camp Hero buck. We killed a monster. It was uh, a couple this year. The one he killed last year was two two eighty seven gutted. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Huge. 171 year. green score, I think. Yeah, 171. Big, big buck. That was uh, Pestle get, County is where that was. We don't get those down here in the swamps of South Carolina. Right. <laughs> yeah, we get these little tiny little German shepherds running around. Pretty much. Um, All right. Got that. Got that. 
Okay. So what's so what's like what's the what do you guys have working on that you can talk about for the future? Anything anything unique? Anything exciting? Yeah. Oh yeah. We've uh, that's kind of the cool thing about like I said that Hidden Bar is just owned by the four of us. Mm-hmm. Make the decisions together. We don't have some uh, outside entity that's controlling the finances that says, "Oh, we must push this amount out," or we're gonna, you know, it has to be this. And uh, accountants a lot of times run whiskey. Just yep. so you guys know. Oh yeah. You know, <laughs> especially at the bigger distilleries. But so that allows us the freedom to to change things up really quickly and to just come up with new, you know, new different ideas. We just did a uh, another batch called Series Two, where Jackie went out and selected barrels at MB Rowan. It's absolutely phenomenal if you guys get a chance to try that. I know that as we wait for our own whiskey that I'm distilling uh, to come of age, uh, we're going to select from just different areas. I know I think we're looking at doing maybe some with Stumpy Spirits in Illinois. We're looking at finding a distillery. I think they've selected Deer Hammer uh, out in Colorado. So we'll do a Colorado release. We'll do an Illinois release. We'll do an Indiana release, possibly with uh, like Jason Fruits up in Old 55. Just people that are aligned with the values that we see that we want with our whiskey and one of those being a pot still, those are the type of people that we want to work with and be able to source and, and, you know, to be able to source some product from, uh, I think maybe even stolen wolf up in, uh, up in Pennsylvania You know, all these would be great, cool little releases that we could do. Have you had the old 55 sweet mash? Fucking love it. Dude. Yeah. <laughs> so do we. <laughs> I don't know why to say that, you know, but yeah, fruits is awesome, man. Yeah, dude, it's uh, it's like the nose. If you can get over the sharpie smell, if you can get over it, it's it's really good whiskey. We have a friend that lives in Indiana, and he he hooks us up. That's how we get this. We can't get anything down here, so we have to have we have to call in favors. We owe a lot of people a lot of favors. Yeah, we do. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, how's Jackie making it with no marketing or labeling or Instagram department? I think she's doing all right with it. I mean, uh, I, I, I've just been super impressed with how, and I, I really had no involvement in, in that part of it at all. I mean, I was there for the photos and the talk and stuff like that, but you know, it was Jackie and, and Weiniger and Dangner that put together our whole marketing push and the launch of Hidden Bar, which I honestly think they've done it as good as any brand has ever launched any product. I mean, it was everywhere. It was in Forbes, been in the New York Times this past year, and it's been pretty incredible. So Jackie's really good on that side of it as well. She really knows what to do, obviously, from years of watching how Brown Foreman does a release mm-hmm. and how and how they, you know, do their you do their stuff. She just has a really good understanding of, of how to, to go about launching a brand. And I think that they, I mean, she's done a killer job with it. And still does. She, I mean, all of our uh all of our marketing and everything's done internally as well. Nice. Nice. Or by, or by friends that Jackie has in the industry. She definitely has that. Yeah, it's not a, everybody knows Jackie. It's not an easy. It's not an easy market to. Not an easy market to to market in. Like it's. It's. There's a lot of restrictions around marketing with this kind of stuff. And what I've found is once you make like just watching influencers, you know, bourbon personalities. What I found is like once they make a name for themselves, it's it's like the sky's the limit. They just run around. And everybody's very loyal, and everybody seems to be pretty cool mm-hmm. with it. It's just it's not really our scene. We just enjoy j- drinking it. We're more hunters than we are. Yep. Whiskey people. So, what's your favorite story about Hidden Barn or the Neely Distillery? <laughs> My favorite. We got more. We got more stories in the Bible. Down oh, there. I know. I heard <laughs> more stories in the Bible. <laughs> what's my favorite one? Hmm. Okay, so you know one of the one of the cool things about Hidden Barn and uh, kind of the way that we operate is is so Jackie's down in Louisville. I'm here in Kentucky, and. Uh, Matt and Nate are out in Colorado. So they'll fly in and we'll all meet up here to work on a batch. 
um, and kind of go over our plan. And we try to do that maybe once every month to once every two months. When we're out here, one of the things that we like to do is, is we all enjoy shooting shotguns and shooting guns. So if you listen to Big Nate talk, you know, he can just, yeah, hell, he's the grandest shotgun shooter you've ever, you know, you've ever been around. I mean, he can hit everything. So we go out here in the yard and I go down there and I get, I got a couple of nice brownings. I bring them out. I hand it to him and I'm like, all right, guys, have at it. So Big Nate whiffs four of them and Jackie hits three out of four. This is the first time Jackie's ever shot a shotgun. By the way. <laughs> And the look on Nate's face, of course, then he starts making some excuses and whatnot. He'll laugh at this too when he when he hears it. But uh, it's kind of a thing that we're thinking about doing, maybe potentially with uh, really good single barrel customers in the future. It's yeah. giving them a hidden barn experience. We're all really uh, there's a lifestyle in Kentucky that really is within the bourbon industry. You know, we all hang out together. There's a cool culture. Uh, you know, of people that I guess. A lot of people call celebrities in the industry. I guess we play cards and hang out and whatnot. We're thinking about maybe bringing some people in that would never get to experience that, letting them come outside and shoot shotguns with us. You know, I got a bunch of old hot rods. You know, you get to take a trip and ride around in my 66 GTO with the top down. With oh, yeah. You know, just nice. some different stuff like that I think could be really neat and a way to really get people that support us really well to give a little bit back to them. I love the idea. You know, I'm a car guy, too. and uh, Yeah. Yeah. Guns and shooting, hunting, car guy stuff. That's yeah, you get to come out here and outshoot old Nate. <laughs> Everything you just described is exactly the premise that we found this company on a couple of years ago, which is just that camaraderie and fellowship that yeah. exists in both the the hunting and bourbon community and how in the outdoors, whether it's a hundred years ago, camping out for three, you know, three weeks and hunting while you while you run batches through your still, or whether it's getting around with fellow fellow folks um in, in your industry and 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 hanging out today, uh, it's, it's kind of, it's kind of the same thing. Yeah. It's a, uh, yeah, we're, it's the same thing, dude. It's like, we, that's the reason that we we're, we're into it. We wouldn't be doing this. I mean, we have full-time jobs this is like, this is our hobby. This is our passion. We love doing it. We like sitting around with people and going to play cards on Saturday. We're, are you going? Yeah. I'm just going by. Yeah. So we're both, we're playing cards on Saturday, some liquor store owners, some guys around the area. And we like going to distilleries and, and they wave us straight in the back and we go back there and talk shit with the master distiller and, it's like it's I'm not interested in Instagram followers. That's one of the reasons we quit doing the YouTube page. It's just it's it removes time from which we could spend with our family or friends or people in the industry like hanging out and doing stuff. Yeah. And it's and this gives us an opportunity to meet a lot of people that we wouldn't have been able to do. Yeah, I think Freddie Johnson says it perfectly, man. When when he goes and describes like, you know, the way bourbon creates memories and it's about sharing it with friends, it's about sharing it with family. And uh that's what that's what I love about it as well, you know. Well, my final notes on this, uh, I get the most predominant note I'm getting after the corn is spearmint for some reason, but I'm really enjoying it. And I can taste, I like that there's not a lot of, I like that you use level two char, so it's not super, you're not filtering a bunch of stuff out of it. All the flavor's there. It's very fascinating. It's interesting. It's something that I'm excited to share. You got a barrel stain, right? So if you if you do a char three, you know, the, the whiskey can only penetrate, let's say, half of that stain. So you've already removed some parts of it. If you do a char three, you burn off mm-hmm. a lot of that flavor layer. It's not the it's not the char you get the flavor from. It's the red area behind it, what we call yep, the red the layer red. behind it. Yep. So that's why I like that char too, because you preserve more red layer. I've got some of the char there to polish up the spirit in case I make a bad cut or there's some different compounds that come over we don't want, it'll filter that out. But we got an ample amount of red layer to give as much flavor to it as we possibly can. Can you smell it when the cut's too late? Yes. Yeah. Yes, you can. I'll talk about you. I know. I know that you can. <laughs> I, just, I figured you could. 
I am really, really, really sensitive now to heads and tails. Like sure. I can taste other people's whiskey and, and taste it in it. Um, it makes me sick uh, because I've just I've tasted so much of it. I mean, I'm, I'm hypersensitive to both to both parts of it, which is good. Yeah. What you want to be but. sure. I can definitely, I can definitely get. I don't know so much on the on the tails, but I can definitely tell when there's when when it was cut too late. I could I could taste it. I don't know that I'm super experienced with the with the tail flavor, but. Mm-mm. I'm sure uh, if you pointed it out to me, I'd be like, oh, okay. Yeah, if you come in and try it and make some tails cuts, you would be able to taste other whiskey and be like, oh, yeah. Yep, they, they waited way too late to cut the tails. I taste a lot of clear spirits. You throw it back yeah. in the still? I don't. I dump it. Do you? I don't reuse tails. You know, that's an old, that's a, that's an old method. It's, re, it's reusing the tails and stuff, especially in, like, Scotland now, and I don't. I, I throw it away. Yeah. And I learned that making it illegally. It's just whatever you put back in is going to co- try to come back out. That's right. And that's why I dump it. So it just makes it easier for me to make clean cuts. I'm not trying to make the, I'm not trying to get to two and a half or to three barrels a day. Or, you know, I just want to make the two best barrels that we can possibly make. As long as we make great whiskey, I'm a firm believer that Neely's always going to have a spot in the market. I fucking that's love what it. About. You know, you still got to sell whiskey at the end of the day. I want to come up there and, and taste all your tails so I can learn what tails taste like. <laughs> you come up here and taste them. I need to do that. I need to buy some beef. I'll bring my shotgun. I think that's it. Yeah. <laughs> so, so what do we need to know before? Go ahead. I said that'd be good enough. That's all you need to bring. I'm down. <laughs> what do we need to do before we cut it off? I don't want to hold you much longer. Uh, I mean, you guys can find us on uh, Instagram and Facebook at Neely Family Distillery or at NeelyFamilyDistillery.com. Uh, the distillery is open seven days a week. We do tours and tastings and try to have a good time down there. So everybody's welcome to come on out and see what we do. Awesome. Awesome. Royce, thank you very much. Uh, I would thank you for the spirit, but we bought that. So thank my thank us for the thank you, Gus, for buying this for us. Thank you, Matt. <laughs> Delicious. I'm glad we bought it. I'm glad. Yeah. I'm glad I read that. I'm glad somebody made me laugh because they did, they thought Jackie was joking about. It. That's seriously where this all came from. They thought oh. Jackie was joking about you catching yeast. No jokes, my friend. It's awesome, man. Maybe we'll do a video this year. I'll take Jackie out with me. I hit barn crew and go out and catch some yeast. Well, that'd be yeah. cool, man. Yeah, you should definitely do that. Yeah. That'll be good content. I'd like to go anyway. For sure. All right, Royce, thank you very much. Yeah, appreciate your time, man. Thank you guys for having me on. Absolutely, anytime.